Let's begin with prayer. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that you've made a way for us into your presence through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that by your Spirit we are joined to him, and we have access to you, and we have fellowship and communion with you. Uh, we thank you for uh, the uh, portraits and figures, foreshadowings of this great gift that you have given us throughout the Old, Co Old Covenant, Old Testament. And we pray as we continue to consider uh, worship and how to worship you, you would deepen our understanding of what we're doing in worship and how to offer you a fitting sacrifice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So two things I want to do this evening uh, regarding sacrifice. We talked a lot about sacrifice this morning. Uh, I want to go through a little bit of uh, Leviticus 1 and highlight a few things, a few details of that chapter that will uh, provide some additional support for what I was saying this morning. I was working from the early chapters of Genesis and suggesting that the parameters and basic theology of sacrifice begins with creation, uh, the creation of Eve, the, the formation, the building of Eve, uh, and then uh, several things that occur after the fall, the Lord's um, provision of animal skins to cover Adam and Eve, and then the establishment of the cherubim at the gate of the garden with their flaming swords. All of those are contributing to uh, different aspects of sacrifice. And we see allusions to those, uh, those original patterns and forms when we look in detail at the... Uh, at the uh, first chapter of Leviticus. Um, we could look at other chapters of Leviticus, but uh, the first chapter illustrates it uh, well. So let me read the first nine verses. This is uh, Leviticus 1. It's talking about the ascension offering. And um, I'll stop along the way as I'm reading and just make observations about what, what's going on in the text and how it fits in with the things we were talking about earlier today. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. If the offering is an ascension from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect, he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. The you might have in your margin, as I do, that the word offering uh, in verse 1, it's used twice in verse 1, just as not, not burnt offering or ascension offering, but just offering, is the word korban. Uh, that's the Hebrew word behind that word for offering. Uh, that word is cited in the New Testament when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for not supporting their aging parents with their, their uh, money and wealth. But instead they say it's korban, that means it's given over to the Lord. And so they excuse uh, their uh, non-fulfillment of their, uh, their uh, duties as children uh, by this uh, gesture of piety, this uh, deceptive gesture of piety that uh, they're, they're giving the money that they should give to their parents to God. That's the word that's used uh, uh, for the, uh, all of the offerings are described as kor korban. If you're bringing a korban to the Lord, when you bring your korban of animals, if your korban, in verse 3, is an ascension offering, then you do this. So the ascension offering is a particular kind of korban. Um, that, uh, that word becomes illuminating for what's going on in the chapter when we realize that 
the verbs surrounding those nouns, the, the noun korban is used several times, and the verb to bring near or even to offer, that's the verb that's the same root as korban, karav. So uh, if you were going to transliterate that, it would sound like this. When any man of you karavs a korban to the Lord, you shall karav your korban from the animals and from the herd, or you want to do it in English. If anyone, if any man of you brings near a near bringing, you shall bring near your near bringing. If his near bringing is an ascension offering, he shall bring it near, and he shall bring it near to the doorway of the tent of meeting. This, there's this repetition of the same root um, a number of times in the opening verses of Leviticus. And I've translated as bring near because that's the sense of the a sense of the word, a, to offer something in using this verb, there are other verbs that describe this, to offer something is to bring something near to the Lord. The thing that is brought is called a near bringing, a korban. Uh, it's a gift that's brought to the Lord, but I think it also indicates the idea of approach and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, access. Uh, and I think it identifies the intention of the ascension offering and also all the other offerings, which is to uh, draw near to the Lord through the offering. The offering is a means by which the worshiper himself comes near to the Lord. He can't come near to the Lord in the way that he would like because he's in Adam. We talked about this earlier. If he's in Adam and if he's outside the garden, then he has to get past the cherubim and he can't. So he brings a korban that's going to draw near to the Lord on his behalf and through the animal that draws near to the Lord, the worshiper is drawing near. So we have that paradigm from Genesis 3 where uh, the intention of sacrifice is to, to, to uh, pass by uh, the guardians at the gate, as it were, the sword and fire of the cherubim, in order to draw near to the Lord and be in his presence. Uh, that's uh, signified by the, by the particular language that's used to describe the Offering, these are the, again the offerings in general. Um, all of the offerings are ways of drawing near. They have different, different aspects to them and different functions to them, uh, but they all have to do with bringing, uh, drawing near to the Lord and being in his presence. Um, and that, that um, Genesis context is also highlighted by uh, the use of the word Adam in verse 2 uh, as uh, the word for man. If any man of you brings near a near-bringing to Yahweh. He shall bring near your near-bringing of animals from the herd of the flock. The, the word translated as man is Adam. Uh, Adam, of course, is given as a proper name. We use it as a proper name for the first man. Uh, but it's a generic term. Adam just means man. Uh, it's uh, puns with the word for ground, Adamah. Uh, Adam is called the uh, Adam because he's taken from the Adamah. He's taken from the ground. Uh, and he's named her after, as it were, his, his mother earth, put it that way. Uh, but that's, this is not the only word that could be used for a man. You could use a word that uh, just, uh, it, it, the word ish is another word for man. Uh, you could use a more generic term like nefesh, soul. If any soul wants to bring near an, an ascension offering, he can bring near an ascension offering. Chapter 4, that's the word that's used throughout uh, to describe the person who's bringing an offering. It's not an Adam, it's a Nefesh. Uh, 
You could use a word that has uh, specific connotations of being male. Uh, Adam usually re refers to male, but it, and as in Genesis 1, it can refer to uh, mankind. Um, here, it's, uh, I think it's to be taken masculine, as a masculine, when any man of you. But the fact that it's Adam rather than one of these other options is highlighting the Edenic context of this offering. The one who's bringing near the near bringing in order to draw near is an Adam. So every worshiper who draws near to the Lord is in the position of Adam, trying to draw near to the Lord, but having to draw near to the Lord through this, uh, through this mediated means, not, through, not directly. Um, so that, that part of the theology of sacrifice from Genesis is, I think, uh, evident in the way that the terminology, in the terminology that's used to describe this particular kind of near bringing. Uh, verse 4 goes on. He shall lay his hand on the head of the, uh, of the ascension offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. We talked about atonement earlier today uh, in connection with Genesis 3.21. When Adam and Eve uh, have sinned, they make their own coverings. They make their own fig leaves to hide their shame. Uh, those are removed, and the Lord instead gives them a different clothing, an animal skin to wear rather than the leaves that they've taken. Uh, and that is a covering for their shame, it's a it's a it's a it's a grace to them, because um, they are naked and ashamed, and so the covering their nakedness is a way of covering their shame. And I mentioned that the word, uh, the, the idea of covering, is uh, the root word, the root idea of the word for atonement. Uh, to make atonement is the is the verb kafar, uh, and that's the word uh, that's used to describe what Noah does to his ark. He kafars the ark with pitch, he covers it over. Um, when the, the day of atonement is the day of coverings, when through a sequence of sacrifices and, and sprinkling of blood and the removal of the scapegoat, the sins of Israel are being covered over. God is graciously providing a covering for them so that their shame is hidden. Um, uh, this is a, God, God is the one before whom Adam and Eve are ashamed, before whom we experience shame because we're exposed and we're supposed in our sin and our weakness, but God is graciously providing a covering. And that's what the, uh, uh, what the uh, ascension offering is doing, among other things. It's covering the Adam. He draws near through the animal, and he also gains atonement by, uh, receiving, uh, by, by offering this animal. He, he gains a covering. Then we have this in verse 5. He shall slay the son of the herd before Yahweh, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and the sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Shall skin the uh, ascension offering and cut it into its pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put the fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up all in smoke on the altar for an ascension an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Um, I was going to stop, but I, kept, I, I couldn't stop myself, sorry. Uh, verse 5 has a couple of interesting things going on, uh, particularly in the first phrase, he shall slay the son of the herd. That's the phrase, it be translated as young bull perhaps in your Bibles. But it's the phrase son of the herd. Um, the animal is considered as a son from the herd from the collective herd, and there's, that's in the context uh, 
where the Lord has already, uh, has already spoken of certain sons. Verse 2, the sons of Israel. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them. And then in the next line, he's going to say, after the son of the herd is slain, Aaron's sons, the priests, are going to offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood. And the sons of Aaron are going to take over and do a number of the actions of this ritual. So there's this interplay between the sons of Israel, who are bringing the son of the herd, and the sons of Aaron, who are performing the rites. Uh, that connects the son of the herd both with the Israelites, who are sons of Israel, and with the priests, the, the, uh, the bull is, the, the, the uh, animal is playing a kind of priestly role in drawing near to the Lord uh, in a way that the, the worshiper can't, that as the priests represent the Israelites as a whole in their ministry inside the holy place and at the altar, so this animal is going to represent this particular Israelite and go through this uh, experience of being uh, slain, dismembered, and turned to smoke on behalf of the Israelite. He's taking that, he's taking that, uh, that uh, priestly role. And the, the interplay of the different, the, different son, the different kinds of sons that are mentioned here uh, uh, implies that. We also have some other, think of the other background to that idea of a son. You're thinking that what you're bringing to the Lord is uh, as a son from your herd. Um, that uh, probably brings up a couple of previous incidents in Israel's history when offerings and sacrifices specifically had to do with sons. We can think back all the way to Genesis 22 when Abraham is commanded to offer his son and then a substitute is found for his son. Um, that's a substitute son that's offered. Every worshiper who comes near is in the place of an Abraham who's offering up a, uh, a symbolic son, an animal son, a substitute son. When Abraham is called to do that, Abraham, uh, think of the larger context of Abraham's life. Abraham is old. He's been waiting decades to have a son. He finally has a son, and he no sooner has a son through Sarah than the Lord wants it back. Send it up to me. Offer, offer this son as a sacrifice. Uh, what Abraham is offering is not just his beloved son. What he's offering is the covenant, the fulfillment of the covenant promise. The whole future of the Abrahamic promise depends on Abraham having a son by Sarah. And the Lord says, now you've got to give that entire thing, that entire future to me. Of course, Abraham offers that to the Lord, and the Lord restores it. Isaac is uh, given back to him as, as if from the dead, as Hebrews 11 says. It's a, it's a picture of resurrection. It's also a picture of substitution, of course. But that's part of, the, part of the significance of a worshiper bringing a son of the herd. He's an Abraham bringing a, a substitute Isaac. And in doing that, he's offering a future to the Lord in order to receive the future back from the Lord. Uh, that's the act of faith that's required in, um, uh, for, for sacrifice. Trusting the Lord to restore what we offer him and to restore it with, uh, with interest. Um, I mean, in, in a literal sense, you're offering a, the future of a particular line of animals. You know, what you, uh, if, you're offering a, if you're offering a young bull, you know, that young bull could uh, be, a, a, be a stud that 
uh, is able to sire, you know, dozens of young animals, uh, a whole herd. Uh, you could slaughter him and eat him. Uh, there's uh, a future to that son that's now being cut off and offered to the Lord uh, with the promise, the same promise that's given to Abraham, that uh, the future is offered back, and it's offered back glorified. The other prominent offering of a son, or substitute son, is at the Passover, of course, uh, when the threat against Israel and against Egypt is a threat specifically against the, new, uh, the firstborn sons. Um, the Lord is carrying out his justice against Egypt. Egypt has, uh, Pharaoh has seized the Lord's firstborn son, Israel. Uh, Pharaoh has been killing the sons of Israel, the little infants, ch children, male children of Israel. And the Lord has threatened from the beginning, if, you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, son for son, if you take my son, I'll take yours. Uh, and that's what's happening at Passover. And Israel escapes that when the angel of death goes through Egypt, escapes that fate only because they, they offer a substitute son, or either lamb or goat. Of course, place the blood up on the lintels and doorposts of the, of the house, and then the angel of death passes by, and they're saved. And that's part of the significance of this offering, that in offering a son, you're repeating and reenacting a kind of Passover moment. When a substitute for your son is being offered, blood, in verse 5, is going to be sprinkled around on the altar, that's at the doorway of the tent of meeting. The altar is associated with the doorway. Blood isn't put on the doorway, but blood is displayed before the Lord as it was displayed in the Passover. And uh, there's an uh, there's a escape from death uh, by the offering of a substitute son. So that Passover, that Passover theology is in the background as well. So once the animal has been slain and the blood has been sprinkled around on the altar... Uh, and probably on the sides of the altar, there's no speci specific place. Some of the offerings specify where the blood has to go, but this, uh, the ascension offering, it's just splashed on the sides of the altar. Uh, after that, the animal is skinned and cut into its pieces, and then it's stacked up in particular, in a particular, uh, in a particular order, uh, inside the altar. Uh, the altar is a uh, a uh, bronze. It's a bronze structure, but it's a bronze shell with a great down inside it, uh, there are, uh, there's a, a fire that will be burning and ashes fall down through the grate, but the animal's placed kind of midway down in the altar. Um, uh, some, sometimes, some ancient altars are solid. You find archeological, uh, archeologists find that they find altars that are solid stone, for example, uh, and they just have a solid stone platform. Those are probably uh, like the incense altar, you'd be, it'd be some, it'd be for burning something, uh, burning incense just on that flat surface. Um, but the altar, the altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle is a, is a uh, bronze shell into which the animal is placed, uh, and he's placed into this fire, God's fire that God lit uh, when He first set up the tabernacle, uh, and He's sent into that fire in order to be transformed to smoke. And as an ascension offering, the entire animal is going to send into the presence of God. And this again is, this is the way that the worshiper is drawing near. The worshiper is bringing near the animal, and the worshiper is drawing near through offering the animal uh, and uh, receiving atonement and all the other things that, that I've mentioned. 
Uh, we were talking at dinner a little bit. I'll, I'll say, uh, uh, just expand on that, uh, the arrangement of the animal inside the altar. Because uh, uh, Mary Douglas has some comments about how this, how this is done that I think are illuminating. Uh, some of them I think are, are, are questionable, but one of the things that she uh, suggests or hints at uh, is that the, there's an analogy between the altar and the tabernacle. There's an al analogy certainly between the altar and, and Sinai. The altar is a kind of small holy mountain with billowing smoke above it. If you looked at, if you looked at Sinai, it would look like a gigantic altar, uh, an altar of rock with a billows, billows of fire and smoke at the top. Um, and the mountain and the tabernacle are analogous. The tabernacle and the altar are all analogous. They're different, they're different portraits of the same reality. Uh, and part of the symbolism of the altar is that it's divided into the same kind of, it has the same kind of triple structure that the mountain has. The mountain has a base uh, with, a, with a boundary around it. No Israelite can touch the mountain. Uh, the mountain has midway up is where the elders and the priests go to eat and drink in the presence of God. And then there's a barrier above them that they can't cross. And Moses goes up through that barrier and into the cloud. So there's a kind of most holy place at the top of the mountain. There's a kind of holy place where the priests and elders go to eat. And then there's a kind of courtyard at the base of the mountain. There's a threefold structure. And the tabernacle, of course, has that same threefold structure with its court and its holy place and the most holy place. And I think it's uh, part, of the, part of the intention of these sacrifices is uh, it, part, of, part of the meaning has to do with the way the altar resembles or replicates that same threefold structure. You have a base of the altar where sometimes blood is poured out at the base. Uh, you have that interior, that interior grate uh, that is partway down in the altar where the animal is being placed and being burned. And then you have the horns of the altar at the top that uh, represent the highest point, uh, that are the highest point of the altar and represent them, correspond to the innermost part of the tabernacle. So what's happening with the animal is the animal, I think, is being placed into this kind of small-scale tabernacle environment and entering in pieces, entering into the smoke and fire of a kind of holy place, what's in that, what's in that holy place where you have fire that, that uh, links up with the fire that's burning in the lampstand. Uh, when you offer an ascension offering, you accompany it with bread, uh, which is like the bread on the table. Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, tribute offering, the minka, is always uh, uh, has... Uh, uh, frankincense associated, incense associated, which is the other piece of furniture in the holy place. So the things that are placed into the altar uh, match up with the things that are uh, inside the holy place. And then the animal goes in, again, playing this kind of priestly role. The animal goes into the altar and is consumed in smoke. And what's happening there is that the worshiper, through the animal, is entering into uh, the house of God uh, through that substitute, through that representative. He's not personally entering in, but the animal is entering into the altar, the, the holy place of the altar, as it were, uh, in order to draw near to the Lord in a way that the worshiper can't. Okay. So all of that is going on. There's, there's these allusions going through this chapter, going through the section of the chapter, go back to Genesis. There's these allusions back to Abraham and to the Passover. Uh, and then there's these various indications that the animal is taking up the role of a priest and drawing near as a korban, drawing near in order to uh, bring the worshiper near. Uh, as we talked about through uh, uh, through the through the 
talk this morning, excuse me, sacrifice, of course, transformed along the way of Israel's history. We have the animal sacrifices that are uh, introduced and elaborated uh, at Sinai. Uh, and then with David, we have the introduction of musical sacrifice that accompanies the animal sacrifices. And then in the New Covenant, uh, we have the sacrifice of praise, no more animal sacrifices, but all the theology of the animal sacrifice is, uh, is uh, 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 kind of directed toward understanding what we're doing in worship when we offer sacrifice of praise, which I think uh, primarily has to do with an offering of song, offering of music. And this morning we looked at the priestly dimensions of the sacrifice of praise. Uh, priests are the ones who play the music. Priests in playing music, priests and Levites in playing music and singing are uh, raising a sweet sound before the Lord. Uh, but the Bible also associates music with kingship. Uh, and the association with kingship is pretty consistent. Uh, going all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis, the first references to musical instruments come in Genesis 4, when it's tracing the line of Cain. And coming out of Cain, you have various kinds of innovative social and cultural and uh, technical developments. Cain had relations with his wife, this is Genesis 4.17, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he, that's Cain, built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. It's the first mention of a city in the Bible, and we have a, a, an experiment in civic order. Uh, verse 18, uh, yeah, verse 19 rather, Lamech, descendant of Cain, uh, took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada. The name of the other was Zillah. Experiment in family structure, polygamy, and innovation. Ada gave the birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. We know there were uh, uh, Abel cared for livestock, um, but Jabal has some prominent role in developing animal husbandry, another innovation. And his brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of those who played the lyre and the pipe, innovations in music and art. Zillah also gave birth to Tubalcane, the forger of all implements of bronze and irons, and the sister Tubalcane was Niama. Okay. These are, in the, uh, within the, within the uh, narrative of Genesis, these are all expressions of the command to Adam to rule the earth, to have dominion, to subdue it. These are different ways that the that human beings are carrying out that commission. They're not carrying out that commission uh, uh, righteously. The city of Cain is not a righteous city. Um, polygamy is not a righteous family structure. Um, you can imagine that, the, that uh, Jubal is probably not playing the lyre and the pipe uh, as a way of honoring the living God. If he's a descendant of Cain, he's probably using it to worship idols. Um, but there's still innovations and developments, and that's all part of the increasing dominion of humanity over the earth. And uh, music making, uh, the making of musical instruments specifically, is part of that. So that, uh, the making of musical instruments is an expression of dominion. Uh, and we also have the, 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 the whole chapter, this whole section of chapter four is uh, surrounded by references to civic order and political power. Um, Enoch's, uh, or, or Cain's city in verse 17, 
And then we have Lamech come on the scene, uh, or he's, he's been mentioned earlier, but then verse 23, uh, he's taking power, he's uh, uh, enacting vengeance. He's a kind of royal, uh, a, an, an ungodly royal figure who has power over other human beings and is uh, violently expressing his power. So the, this whole section of the chapter is about different forms of kingship in the, Cain, in the line of Cain. And uh, one expression of kingship is the making of musical instruments. Uh, and we see that association, which is hinted at there, again and again in uh, the Old Testament. Um, prior to the beginning of the monarchy, uh, the, uh, uh, most, uh, most of the musical uh, labor was done by women. Miriam leads the women of Israel in song after the exodus. She's playing the tambourine and other instruments, and the women are dancing and singing. Uh, Deborah uh, composes a song. She's it, uh, Deborah and Barak both are contributing to the song, but it's usually considered the song of Deborah. She's composing this after, after their victory. Um, they're, uh, those are singers, and Miriam is, is, uh, is uh, leading music, um, uh, instrumental music. Uh, but then when the king, king, when the king kingdom begins, even before a king is anointed, we start seeing musical instruments pop up all over the place. Saul is not yet anointed. He's been told by Samuel that he's going to be anointed. And the signs that he's going to be anointed, he gives him several signs. One of them, he's going to meet a gathering of a group of prophets. And they're going to be coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre. And they will be prophesying. And when the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you on Saul, you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. So there's a prophetic, uh, there's a prophetic band uh, that, and a prophetic quartet, maybe not a quartet, quintet, sextet. There's a, uh, there's a prophetic uh, band of singers and musicians. And Saul, as one of the signs that he's going to be king, is caught up into that group of prophets, and he begins prophesying. Prophesying here surely refers to singing, prophesying with musical accompaniment. Uh, they're prophesying with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre, and so on. Uh, that's one of the signs that Saul's going to be king, is that he's a music maker. Okay. Uh, of course, David is the one who is the most prominent music maker in the entire Bible, and he's the, the paradigm king, and he's also the paradigm musician. Uh, he organized the Levitical choir and orchestra. We talked about that. You look at First Chronicles. He's called the sweet psalmist of Israel in Second Samuel 23. He writes psalms. Chronicles tells us that he creates musical instruments. Uh, even before he becomes king, he's not only proving himself to be a uh, valiant warrior in fighting against Goliath, but he's proving himself to be an exorcist a warrior against spiritual powers, spiritual enemies. And when he confronts spiritual enemies, he doesn't, he doesn't have a sword. He doesn't even have a sling and a stone. He confronts the spiritual enemies with a harp. First Samuel 16. Of course, this is after the spirit has departed from Saul and the spirit is plaguing. Well, actually, that's what verse 14 of chapter 16 says, so I don't need to say that. I could just read it. Verse 14 of 1 Samuel 16. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, as I was saying, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. 
Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you. He shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men answered and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a man, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. Notice the, notice the order of talents. Uh, David is first of all described as a musician, as a wise musician, a skillful musician, then a mighty man of valor and a warrior one prudent speech and a handsome man, but the priority, priority is given to his musical abilities. And so Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send, send me to your son David, send me your son David, who was, on, uh, who was with the flock. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about whenever the evil spirit uh, from God came to Saul, David would take his harp and play with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. So David can go out and kill a Philistine giant with a sling and a stone. Later on, of course, he's going to fight with more conventional ancient weapons of swords and spears and so on. Uh, but when he's really fighting the most serious and powerful enemy, evil spirits, he fights with a musical instrument. That's his weapon. Uh, this lyre is his weapon, and his fingers are the, he doesn't fight with his hand, but with his fingers, as he plucks, uh, fingers and tongue, as he plucks and sings and drives out the evil spirit. Uh, David is proving himself to be king by being a musician, uh, just as Saul is uh, signified as the future king by being joined in by the spirit into the, into the prophesying of these prophets. Uh, one, one last indication of this, that is the association of kingship with music, is in uh, Revelation 5. The previous chapter, Revelation 4, John is swept up by the Spirit into heaven. He goes through the door in the sky, and he sees this worship service going on around the throne. Uh, beginning of verse 5, there's a problem in the heavenly sanctuary. There's a book that should be opened and there's no one to open it. And a search is made, no one is found. And then the king appears, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who appears like a lamb. And once the king appears, there's again praise given to the one on the throne and now to the lamb. But the praise is different. Before the four living creatures are, who make up the throne are saying, holy, holy, holy. The elders are falling before the, Lord, before the one enthroned and worshiping, worthy, worthy you are, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. But now, as soon as the king appears, Jesus the Lamb, uh, Revelation 5, 8, when he had taken the book of the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, and golden incense, full of, golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, sang, and then worthy are thou to take a book. It's a new song, but it's, it's a new thing they're saying, but it's now a sung act of worship accompanied by the harps that appear out of nowhere. But when the king comes, then the music 
the music strikes up, the band strikes up when the king comes. Uh, that's a, that's a, a consistent theme throughout the Bible. Kingship and music are associated uh, regularly. And that's not just an accident. That's not just a hap- uh, just happen to happen, happen to be that way. Um, but there are interconnections, deep connections between kingship and the making of music. And I think in a number of different, in a number of different respects. Um, if you can make music, you have taken dominion of whatever it is you're making music with. If you're making music with your own body, singing, or you know, maybe, maybe you use your body as a percussion instrument and you can make all kinds of percussion noises by beating on your body. Uh, that, that requires a certain kind of command of your body. To be a really good singer, you have to have a great command of your, you have to know how to breathe, you have to know how to use your muscles. It's a, it's a taxing thing, I'm told, uh, to sing really well, okay? Uh, you have to have dominion over your own person in order to be a good singer. Um, and you, if you're playing an instrument, you have to have developed skill in order to play. You have to practice. You have to use your body in particular ways. Again, it's, it's a physically taxing thing to play a, uh, a, a piano concerto, you know, if you're playing along with a Prokofiev piano concerto and you're just b- tearing up the piano for 45 minutes, that takes an enormous energy and strength and endurance, stamina, to, in order to complete that. Besides all of the control that you have in your fingers and your arms and all the other parts of your body that are involved in playing a, playing a piano. And the same, true, same is true of every other kind of instrument. In order to make music, either by, by singing or by playing an instrument, you have to have achieved dominion over some part of the creation. In fact, the, the existence of musical instruments themselves, the fact that musical instruments exist, is a sign that human beings have taken over part of creation. Because, you know, violins don't grow on trees. You, know, you, don't, you, don't, you don't mine pianos. You can't go dig them up. You have to construct them. Somebody, have to, somebody had to invent it obviously. And then you take these various parts of the creation, you take some wood and you take some whatever they used to use, catgut, and you string the catgut on the wood and you form the wood in particular. How long did it take for somebody to figure out how to form uh, a stringed instrument so it sounded good and made the right ki- had the right kind of resonance when the strings were played? Uh, that's an enormous task and it means that you've taken the raw materials of God's creation, and you've made it sing, right? Just like you've taken your own body and you've made it sing. You've taken the wood and you've taken the cat gut and you've taken other elements of the world and you've combined them skillfully and you make the creation sing. And if you're using it as David is in praise of God, you know, he's, he's uh, 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 inventing instruments that are going to be used in the temple, then you've taken the, the raw materials of this world, you've formed them into musical instruments, you've made the creation sing, and you've made the creation sing praise, which is what the creation is for. So every time you see a musical instrument, you're seeing a little glimpse of the eschaton. Every musical instrument, uh, especially in musical instruments that are being devoted to the worship of God, uh, are glimpses of the direction and the trajectory, uh, the telos of the entire creation. All creation is designed to be transformed to become part of 
the praise of God, to become part of a cosmic liturgy, as we've been talking about all weekend. And musical instruments are exemplary of that. I think musical instruments are kind of uh, a, a helpful paradigm of dominion. You want to think what it, want to think about what it looks like to have dominion over the earth. Think of a musical instrument as your paradigm. You want to make the world sing. You want to make the world sing to God, and you can do that in uh, not just making musical instruments. You can do that in all kinds of other uh, technical and uh, uh, and cultural ways. But that that's a helpful paradigm. Um, another way I think that there's an interconnection between kingship and song, and that is uh, I'm talking about how kingship is expressed in music. Music making is a is a sign of dominion that has been achieved. You've taken dominion over your body. You've taken dominion over the over the instrument. Uh, but music is also a means to uh, energize you for royal kingly action. Um, football teams have fight songs. Uh, basketball teams have warm-up music. Because there's something about music that really does uh, uh, strengthen, energize. It certainly feels like you're jumping higher and moving faster uh, when you're doing it to music than otherwise. Uh, you know, soldiers going into battle have learned certain kinds of chants. They're marching to certain chants that keep them in rhythm, that keep them in motion going out to battle, and also energize them with the kind of berserker spirit that they need in order to fight against the enemies. Um, Revelation, again, gives a great example of this. In Revelation 14, these aren't athletes, but they are a kind of warrior. I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. This is the beginning of chapter 14. And with him, 144,000 having his name and the name of, the father, of his father written on their foreheads. The 144,000 have been introduced seven chapters before in chapter 7. They've been marked on the head with the name of God and the Lamb. <clears throat> uh, and they are the they are designated as priests and sacrifices. They're the uh, completion of the collection of martyrs that must die before God brings in the kingdom. That's the message to the martyrs back in <laughs> Revelation six, the breaking of the fifth fifth seal, the breaking of the fifth seal. The martyrs are revealed under the altar, crying out for vengeance, and the answer to them is. You will be exalted, but not until other martyrs are made. And then the, the sixth seal shows the 144,000 being marked out as those additional martyrs who are going to be added to the martyrs who have already died. And once that full complement of martyrs has come in, then the Lord is going to bring in his kingdom in fullness. So that's 144,000. Now they've, they're no longer into the altar notice. They're now on Mount Zion. They're making their way up. The next time we see them, they're going to be up above the firmament. They're making their way all the way up to heaven to join in the heavenly choir. Uh, and then verse 2, I heard the voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. The song of heaven is being heard on Mount Zion. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. That is, all of the voices in heaven. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, for they have, not kept, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. 
These are the martyrs preparing for martyrdom. And how do they prepare for martyrdom? How do they get ready? They get ready by singing, by singing the song of heaven. Uh, their martyrdom is going to elevate them up above the firmament. They've been already been given white robes, so they've got, they're, they're, they've got the right clothing to enter the heavenly choir. That's, those are the choir robes of heaven. And, uh, they're brilliant white. And these martyrs already have these robes. They're going to be elevated to join the heavenly choir. And in preparation for that elevation, which takes the form of martyrdom, uh, they're learning the song of heaven. And they're, uh, they are prepared to uh, meet the lion and the stake and whatever else is coming against them because they're singing together. Okay. Uh, good tip if you want your church to be ready for martyrdom, ready for bold witness in the face of opposition, uh, learn to sing. Uh, learn to sing the war songs of the Lamb. Learn to sing the songs of heaven. Uh, and that then you're, then you're, uh, then you're preparing your church for uh, whatever's going to come. I've noticed this, uh, particularly in CREC churches. CREC churches are vigorous singers. But I think it came to me. I was, I was working through Revelation, and then I visited Pensacola, uh, the uh, Providence church down in Pensacola. Uh, if you know Yuri Brito, he's a one-man choir by himself. His voice fills a room by itself, and he's taught his people to sing. He's up in front booming out, and the whole congregation is uh, singing with with great enthusiasm, and I thought, you know, in the light of this, in light of this chapter, I thought, these people are ready. You can tell they're ready because the way they're singing, and their singing is part of their preparation for the witness that they're being called to. Uh, that's that's one of the key ways that we prepare. That's what that's how we're prepared to be kings because that's what's going to happen to these martyrs, right? Uh, they have been praying, lamenting at the base of the altar. Now they're learning the song of heaven on Mount Zion before they're martyred in, to prepare them for martyrdom. Then they're going to be up above the firmament, but they're not just going to be above the, up above the firmament. Those thrones that the 24 elders were sitting on at the beginning of Revelation, those thrones that the 24 elders have given up at the beginning of Revelation are going to be occupied at the end of Revelation, not by the elders, but by the martyrs. Those who have been beheaded are going to take their throne. The pathway to kingship uh, is by learning to sing in order to bear witness, to bear bold witness in the face of opposition. Uh, so uh, music song prepares us for battle. It, it, is, it isn't just a sign of dominion already achieved. It's part of the preparation for engaging in battle and taking dominion and be, giving a, a good witness, a good and faithful witness to uh, Jesus Christ.